time to turbocharge your online presence and unlock the true potential of your website's digital journey with the Frictionless Experience. This podcast delves deep into the world of user experience to help you eradicate costly friction. Join us as we dive into website and mobile app optimization to explore how refining your digital playground can become a game changer for your business. This is the Frictionless Experience, brought to you by Blue Triangle. Hello, and welcome to the Frictionless Experience, the podcast where we lay waste to digital friction. I'm Chuck Moxley. And I'm Nick Palladino. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about the successful product journey from conception to launch. Joining us is Jason Abdo. Jason is the author of the Product Protege Guide, The Art of Product Management for E-Commerce and Beyond. He's also the founder of Product Protege, an educational platform for product discipline. And he brings more than 15 years of experience in product management for leading e-commerce brands, including Carter's, Oshkosh Bagash, Home Depot, Cox Automotive, and is currently the Senior Manager of Product Management at HD Supply. Jason, welcome to the Frictionless Experience. Thank you guys so much for having me. Excited to be here today. Uh, and, and we are as well. Now, uh, Nick, while Jason and you both spent time at Home Depot, your tenures didn't overlap, correct? Yeah, that's right. We we uh, had different eras, if you will. However, I, I did work very closely with his brother. Wow. That's that's like a, one of those game facts. I'm trying to think of the, <laughs> you know, those random. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> All right. So, Jason, um, can you tell us a little bit more about Product Pro- Protégé? Yeah, absolutely. So Product Protégé came from this idea of there's not really a lot of good introductory material to get into product management. And it really kicked off with this, me falling into the Home Depot on the product management team and everyone asking, oh, so you're a project manager. I said, no, product, product, I promise it's something different. And as I look to enhance my skills and my approach, I felt left needing more. So as I progressed in my career and got to work at all the great establishments here in Atlanta, as I started to mentor others and get them into a great career of product management, um, a Google Doc that started it all, a couple pages turned into 40 pages until someone finally said, man, you should write a book. You should really um, establish foundational approaches for how you do product management and share it with others in a more scalable and responsible way, really think through the different aspects of product management, the discipline. So I took that and uh, thus started Product Protege, which has started as the book that is now available. And it has culminated into online courses that are currently being worked on now that we'll make available. And eventually will be uh, educational sessions where we can go face-to-face and I can help uh, organizations or folks in general uh, with product management, how to help them get in or really look at well-established teams that maybe got put together from different organizations that did product wildly different to give them some cohesive foundational framework to work off of and then take that and make it their own. So that's how Product Protege came to be. And uh, it's been quite the journey so far. We're early, but so far, great feedback, both qualitative and quantitatively, and uh, excited for where we're heading next. That's really cool. And, you know, I, I'd say my own my own journey into product is is very similar uh, to what you're saying, is that there's really no starting point. It just doesn't exist or didn't exist, at least. And it's it's really coming from the fact that it's it's kind of like you said, everybody has their own flavor and it's all being, you know, 
an amalgamation of all these different experiences where you're like this little bit worked and this little bit worked and this little bit worked and let's create a new little bit that's over here. Uh, and it's, it's really cool, but you know, when push comes to shove, it's all about getting, getting a uh, successful product out to the market in the end. hundred percent. And I'm a protege of all the people that took the time to teach me their approach. So I wanted to give back to the community as much as I could. And what's more interesting is the idea that a lot of the people that are buying the book are actually developers, QA folks, analytics folks, because they said you finally demystified what product management is. And I can now ask better questions of my product person running my team or a scrum team uh, that I didn't really feel confident enough in the past to do. So uh, it's really helped kind of demystify the discipline in general. Yeah, that's a great origin story. In fact, as I was reading the book, that's what I thought. It was like just a great starting point for somebody who is new to product management. And and I, I took a job uh, a little over 10 years ago as CMO of a company and they fired the CPO before I started. And I got a call from the CEO saying, now you're also going to be CPO. And I'm like, I'd been product marketing, but I, I didn't know product management. I hadn't like led that whole process. So I was scrambling trying to find books and, and all of that. And it was hard to find. So it sounds like it's a great guide, especially for somebody just starting out in their career in product management. So in your book, you talk about the principles of product management and specifically continuous improvement. Talk about how you've approached that in the past and maybe give us an example of where you've been able to continuously improve that user experience over time and how. Yeah, you know, I think in e-commerce, there's a couple things that will never change, regardless of what you're selling, how you're selling it. The seasonality is someone needs to come to your site. They need to add it to a basket or a cart and they need to check out. So I say it's nice to start there. If I want to offer you a hamburger, it's going to have meat and cheese and bread. So how do we make sure that we offer the, the core experiences that are important? And quite frankly, we don't over-optimize to get in the way of that. So that's kind of where it starts. And when you have that, you recognize there are some key metrics that we are very, I call them the king KPIs in the book, that we need to be absolutely obsessed with and make sure that we have the health of those KPIs and the product hygiene for those KPIs. So once you have that strong foundation, then you get to a sense of, hey, I've got an idea. I've got an inkling. I've got maybe some signal from, we've got feedback from some customers or some business units are saying, wouldn't it be great if... So then you are able to take that and some ideas are, hey, non-negotiable, need to go give it a try. But I think if you uh, take the shiny object and just go ahead and implement and hope it works, I think that's the wrong approach. I think there needs to be this concept of, you know, I'm sure your audience have heard of A-B testing. Um, but even before you get to A-B testing, it has to t take some time for the idea to grow before you even get to that point. And I talk a lot about this as the pitch deck. What problem are we truly trying to solve? As product managers, we are we own the why and the what. And I honestly don't spend too much time in the how. That we, we pay a lot of money and have great developers, designers, QA individuals, and professionals that will help us with the how. But I need to be obsessed with why are we doing this and what are we going to do? And I think if you really spend a lot of your time there and you take this idea and mold it into how you can reduce downstream complications or friction points for your team to be able to take action, uh, that is time worth well spent. And quite frankly, that is where I think most projects in today's world tend to kind of fray a little bit, where you get, hey, I've got this idea. Can you go make search? Um, do type ahead on search. 
So ultimately, okay, hey, everyone, let's start moving, start moving. But what problem did that truly solve? Is it because people don't know how to spell? Google has kind of ruined us. Is it because, <laughs> is it, are we doing that because we want to grow and showcase customers? Maybe we sell more if I type in hammer. Oh, I didn't know you had hammer drills. I was just looking for hammer. So breadth of product offering. What problem are we truly trying to solve? Maybe it's a culmination of those, but I think your UX team, might design it differently if they better understand the problem. I think your QA folks would better have a, a, a bigger sense of like, what's the big picture we're going after? So their test cases, they alter, hey, I'm, I'm going to misspell a couple of things, or I'm going to start with a couple of key characters to see what ultimately provides uh, as a result for me. So I, I, you know, a quick example there in search, but you don't want to then over-optimize where you messed up where I can type in hammer, hit enter. If you get in the way of that, just what I'm naturally used to, and creature comfort wise, I you know I type, hit enter, and go. If we get in the way of that, you've now focused on the iteration, focused on what we're trying to add value, and that might just annoy someone, and your NPS scores start to potentially drop. So, um, you know, I think it really starts in the why and the what. Uh, even as you optimize, you need to make sure that you're you're stuck in what is my problem. What are the key data points that tell me it's a problem? Whether it's feedback or quantitative metrics, we see. Uh, you know, maybe nosediving and we need to take action. What's your hypothesis on how to fix it? What are your goals? So where are we today? Where do we want to go? And what are truly the metrics that you're going to focus on to say, this is the signal I needed to know that we are successful? So uh, you mentioned King KPIs. To talk a little bit more about that and give us some examples. Absolutely. Let's say I'm an e-commerce company that sells jeans and you know, I, I want to take a look at, well, how many visits are coming? So is my marketing team doing a wonderful job? Or maybe I am the marketer for a standup. Uh, what are what's the type of influx we're getting? So is that organic? Do we have to pay for those visits, et cetera? But once they land, that's now when my product team will take over. And the things that they're going to monitor is for everyone that lands on the homepage, how many ultimately get to a page where they see a, a genes that they can add to cart? So um, whether it's through search, whether it's through navigation, through category navigation, whatnot, what is the spread and the segmentation of those folks that do that? Ultimately, once you land on a product detail page, how many are adding to cart? So what's my add to cart rate? And then lastly, they, they're in cart. What's my cart conversion? And then ultimately my revenue. So out of the King KPIs, revenue might be your, your core signal that says we are doing good as a company with top line revenue. But then you go into the secondary and third where it says what leads up to revenue that makes th those are the signals we look for that knows that revenue is going to potentially forecastably uh, forecast, that's not a word, forecast to <laughs> uh, get to a higher revenue or low revenue. And along that journey, what have we learned? I was actually impressed. I thought there was a word. <laughs> I just wasn't aware of it. <laughs> So let's talk about your E3 product framework. What What is it and, and how does it guide digital product teams in their efforts? Maybe some examples? Absolutely. Every project tends to start in a different place. So whether it's it exists today like search and we want to make it better, whether it's a zero to one like Peter Thiel talks about where it didn't exist at all and now we want to bring it to the website. So a, pro a project or a feature or function that didn't exist and now we want to make it available. So the E3 framework, it stands for envision, empower and elevate. So I want to envision what is this idea with a strong foundation of the why and the what this talks this really encompasses connecting with customers, connecting with your internal stakeholders. So meeting with your marketing teams, your merchandising teams, even sometimes your legal teams to understand what are the bounds that we can play with. 
Um, it goes into creating that pitch deck saying, hey, if I'm going to go and ask my co-creators, developers, QA folks, et cetera, to take the time to build this, I want to make sure that they understand the big picture in one page, which is what I refer to as the pitch deck. Problem? Why is it a problem? What's my hypothesis? What is my expected outcomes? What are the signals and the metrics that I'm looking for? And any additional materials to bring that to life in their mind so that they know what we are going after. Then it is envisioning what is the priority and how does this fit on the roadmap? So sequentially, where is it going to live? And priority-wise, where is it going to live? And ultimately, how does it get represented in our roadmap that should have a strong strategy and should have a strong vision associated with it? So as a product manager, I'm now on my journey. I've created this strong pitch deck. I have a great sense of what my stakeholders feel like at my organization. And now it's time for me to empower those co-creators, which once again are designers, developers, your UX team, your QA folks, allow them, remove all the friction for them in the process with strong epics and user story writing. Uh, the guide goes into a lot of approaches for the different teams and what are the questions you truly want to answer before you approach that team try to predict the questions that they will have so that they can get to work and focus. Then you get into your typical scrum, grooming, stand-ups, et cetera, to make sure everyone's aligned and can handle um, any questions that they have. They have a place where they can go to get answers. Those teams will do what they're great at, the how. Designing it, coding it, testing it to make sure uh, you know, from a user perspective that they're going to have a clean, frictionless experience. And then ultimately for the product person to sign off on that and uh, get it ready for the Elevate portion of the E3 framework. Elevate is usually where things start to go a little bit interesting, depending on where you work at uh, in the Atlanta area or really any product team. I tell my product folks, don't get excited that you launched something. Like pat on the back to the co-creators that you did what was right, you executed. That's great, guys. But did it actually work? Did it actually add value? Or if it didn't add value, what did we learn from this? So maybe take a couple of weeks after you launch something. Maybe you send the email that, hey, guys, it launched, but give us a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of time to understand if this was helpful to our King KPIs or secondary metrics. Or, hey, this didn't work this time, but here's ultimately what we learned. And let's just say it did work. What are the signals that you will continue to look for? Do you have a great feedback mechanism from your customers? Do you have a feedback mechanism internally? What is the tree that kind of gets created of, all right, now that this did work, what are the decisions now that are available to us or the paths that we can take now that we know that we didn't interrupt the customer experience, we actually added value and uh, the business also ultimately benefited from this. What, how does that now change our existing roadmap that should be pretty dynamic based off these learnings? Um, and then lastly, now that this worked, what more can we test? Can we lean into an experience that we provided uh, like search? We, we keep bringing up search. So as if I did type ahead and I can showcase some um, predictive words as you type in H-A-M, hammer, hammer, drill, et cetera, hammer and nails, maybe I can start to add recommendations in that dropdown. I don't even have to click enter. I see the product that I was looking for based off all my browsing engagement, my purchase history, et cetera. Do we lean into that and say, is that now an option for us now that we've built this foundational experience that we know added value? So that is the E3 framework with a little bit of an example. So envision the idea, put it in a package that can really be understood by your co-creators, empower them to do great work with all the technical details, the requirements, et cetera, being available to remove friction for your teams and ultimately elevating that for your team, uh, elevating the capability to production, as we say in the, in the industry, and making sure that you keep understanding the signals you're looking for to know if you were a success or if you need to take those learnings and ultimately impact your roadmap and other future optimizations.
Gotcha. It's funny because, uh, you know, we talk, obviously, we're all about frictionless digital experiences. You talk about frictionless in the process of getting to a frictionless digital experience. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's a great way to think about it. Removing friction in the team's process. I think one thing that that reminds me of where we talked to Amir Rosenberg um, was the, this concept of elevating MVP to MVPX, which is basically bringing the experience into the MVP to ensure that everything that you've worked to get that initial release actually contains a solid frictionless experience with it because that MVP often brings the friction so it could invalidate all the research that was done, even though the research still has the right indicator to say, this is the right way forward, you should do this. You just need to make sure the experience is stable enough in doing that MVP to be able to ensure that all of that E3 framework that you're talking about was for that right direction, for that greater good. Absolutely. Nick, you might have mentioned this in the episode you guys did uh, with the gentleman from Wyndham about, you know, speed is always typically better. But if you launch an MVP that degrades your performance, that that macro variable that you didn't account for um, could ultimately skew your data that maybe if you had kept the performance like, you know, this apples to apples, you would have seen an increase in your revenue KPI, whatever the KPI is that you were going after. So that's a really good point that you got to make sure that MVP holistically can live on your site and not have um, too many variables impact what you were trying to do in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that sums it up too. I mean, we're already referring back to two different episodes. How cool is that? But um, in, in understanding what, what, performance does and one of the one of the big concepts in that episode is it, it really only does it erodes the the value that you've provided so the product mentality is going to provide value to a digital experience and speed the only thing it can do is make that value worse by being slow you don't get you don't get credit for being fast you only get you get dinged for being slow and so as you're starting to develop these products and these digital experiences, you need to make sure to, to recognize that. So if you create that MVP and, you know, I'm being a little redundant at this stage, but you create that MVP and it's slow. Now, all of a sudden, it's a net negative for you, even though a reliable, quick MVP X would provide a good experience. But a quick analogy on that, Nick, you know, when, when people I've launched about nine mobile apps in my career and, uh, most of my apps are four and a half star rated and above. And what's interesting about that is what is a five star review? Brian Chesky talks a lot about this from Airbnb. He goes, a five star is I opened the app. I was able to buy something and I got it. Like that doesn't really inspire us to go after five star. What we should be going after is the six, seven, eight star while fictitious and it doesn't exist. How do we, you know, over uh, provide, over provide value for our customers so that they would, if they could give us a six, seven or eight star experience, five stars out the gate. And it's only if you do something wrong, will you start to see different. So for, for, you know, just analogous to what you were talking about is five stars, just, you did what you were supposed to. Now, how do we go above and beyond that? And that's what, you know, our team does the 10 star uh, exercise. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one, but really good exercise from an ideation session is what would a 10-star experience on our app or our website look like? And that's what should be our North Star that we go after. That's interesting. I, I'd like to unpack that a little bit more. How do you how do you define the line in the sand of what a what a 10-star is to be able to start? Uh, I guess it, it, to me, I, my instinct would say, okay, let's let's go to the top and work backwards. Or do you have to start six, seven, eight, nine to get to 10? So we start at five and we understand five is we did our job. 
and someone got their jeans the next day when we said we would, and that's a five-star experience. But let's go above and beyond that. What's a six-star experience? Well, maybe um, I ship you seven pairs of jeans with your one order to say, hey, you bought this one. Great. We think our stylists think you would like these seven others. Try them on and we'll return for free. No problem at all. But if you like some of them, you can keep them and you know, no charge to you if you don't like them. And Oh man, that's great. Well, I didn't even think about this. Thank you guys. I didn't even ask for this. That's wonderful. What's a seven star experience? Our stylist knocks on your door with your jeans and says, hey, not only here's your jeans, but I've got these two different or three different t-shirts that I think will look great with it. Uh, you told us that you were going on a date tonight. We're going to actually style you up, take care of you. Um, we'll take it. What's an eight star? Hey, I've got a barber and I've got someone that's going to shine your shoes waiting in my car. So if, you, if you're cool with it and you need a haircut, we're going to take care of you from top to bottom for that date tonight. What's a nine-star experience? Hey, we saw you had reservations at In-N-Out. We're actually going to take your reservations to the next level. We're going to take you to a nice five-star restaurant. Uh, we're going to, you know, we took care of the reservations for you. We'll make sure you're dressed properly and you look good. We've already let your date know they're picking them up in a limo. What's a 10-star experience? You know, Chuck, Nick, and Jason show up and uh, we're, we're hanging out with you because we're three great guys <laughs> and we're going to hang out with you and we're going to, um, uh, you know, make sure that you have the absolute best date ever. And our CEO of the Gene Company is here to get feedback directly from you to make sure that our experience is the best. So obviously that 10 star experience is never going to happen. But if we shoot for that, and if we try things that won't scale out the gate, we get the signals and we now know what we should build and try to scale as an experience for our customers. So I can't take credit for this. This is a Brian Chesky exercise, but we go through it about every year on the teams that I've been on because it reminds us that we should strive for more than five star. I was wondering when you're upgrading from in and out to a better, is that like Red Robin? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so uh, in, in, you talked about uh, native app. W what does it mean to be web versus native? What are the differences in the experience in the customer and the buyer? Absolutely. You know, I, I think in, in mo I often say this to, my, to the teams I've been on. In mobile, you have moments, not minutes. I think that when you're on a website, clearly you have tabs and you can click around, but you have a lot more landscape in order to gain the, um, you know, uh, you can attract customers to different experiences a lot easier. On a homepage, there's probably anywhere from 25 to 35 different links that you can show. And it's easier to navigate uh, on a website. You have a pointer, clicker, et cetera. Uh, so you're a little bit removed from the site, but in mobile apps, I'm using my thumbs as my navigation and I only get about three and a half by you know two inches in some cases. Luckily, phones have gotten bigger. But also you think about what are the things that can take away the attention of the customer? So imagine you're shopping on the Gene website and you get a call. I've now disrupted that experience. Um, you get a Facebook message, a text message, et cetera. So we are not only fighting our competitors on mobile, we are fighting every other app that you have notifications turned on. And quite frankly, you might be in line. I remember I was working at Carter's and uh, we recognized quickly that a lot of our purchasers, as we watch customers use our, our website and mobile website, it's typically a mom or a dad with a kid in one hand and they only had one thumb because they are so busy and they're just trying to quickly buy clothes for their child. Uh, so we actually looked at some of the UX of what is a one thumb experience that we can provide. And what that led to us, this is when uh, Tinder started getting really uh, explosive in terms of a lot of in the culture, if you will. And I came up with this idea that said, what if you just swipe left and right? We showcase with our recommendation engine products and swipe left, not for me or my child, swipe right. So you pick their age, you pick you know what size they are, and then you swipe left and right in the clothes. 
we launch this thing, we don't get too excited. Just, you know, we're testing it out on 10% of the uh, customers there. And once we went to production, I will never forget, we got this feedback that said, you've made shopping so easy that my grandchild can do it for themselves. And what we found in this you know, session replay was a, a child just sitting there shopping for themselves because easy swipe left and right. So I think what mobile, to bring it back here, is it evolves the ability. If you can leverage mobile as something in your palm and you're counting the taps per task, how many times does my thumb have to hit that glass to do the thing that I want? And if it's any more than three or four, depending on the intent of the customer, we have problems. So we've got to be super quick on mobile. You've got to leverage that the fact that it is a piece of glass in your hand that you can do some things you can't do on web and also your typical things, right? You get push notification, you can do voice, um, you know, search, things of that nature. But it's those, those unique things that you can do on mobile that I think if you're able to leverage them, you can outpace competition and get that escape velocity from anyone you're competing with. I think one thing that's really cool about, about your story with swiping left and right, like while taking inspiration from something entirely of a different vertical, uh, you created something for the mom with the baby in the hand to be able to have a one thumb experience, but you created value for the child to shop directly. Like, how cool is that? Like, that's almost like so many medications out there that were developed for one thing. And then now they're used for something entirely different. I could think of a hundred examples of that. Um, but it's such an interesting thing where our research led us down a very fruitful path for a completely unintended reason. I mean, maybe in, in your world, there was multiple value in, in that specific one, but there's a lot of examples of doing that where you think you're building one thing, but you're actually building something entirely different or building a use case that's entirely different. Absolutely. And had we overanalyzed or kept it, say, hey, this is not for, had we not just tested it and tried, I, I think we would have missed out on that value stream that we could have not have ever thought that, hey, a five-year-old can shop for themselves. So it's a really good point, Nick. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know now I, I'm going to go download that app and see what my son does with it. He's only nine months old, so he's probably just going <laughs> to eat the phone. But, um, you know, it, it'll definitely be something that'll be interesting to see. And what's funny about what you just said there is I don't know if it exists anymore. This was back in 2014, but should it exist? Probably not. And what's funny about being in product is everything you launch in three years should be gone. You should have changed it learn more from your customers, reduce the friction even more, and maybe completely wholesale change the features and functions. So I actually hope it doesn't exist anymore and that they came up with an even better way. And that's what's weird about when I lay, when I'm, you know, 90 plus on my deathbed and I think about all the things that I did, none of it should exist anymore in the very weird way, right? Like all the experiences that I've built, all the nine mobile apps, as I built it out, it should have been iterated 26 times a year every two weeks and should look very, very different in a couple of years to the point where it's not even recognizable to me. And that's a weird kind of, um, you have to bifurcate your success is in the moment and not in the long term because in the long term it should change and it should maybe look very different. Do you know which friction points are hurting you the most? Finding friction with your current tech stack is a good start, but monitoring and digital analytics tools only tell part of the story, leaving you with unanswered questions. Only Blue Triangle quantifies revenue-robbing friction on every page so you can prioritize issues and fix what matters most. Companies can't afford websites with maddening friction. Visit bluetriangle.com today and turn observability into profitability. To learn more or request a demo, visit bluetriangle.com. So then you can define your success as the momentum of where that ended up at the at the late stage. 
Like that's that's the way I would see it anyway. 100%. If change is inevitable, so then I want to focus on the process to bring change, which is why I wrote this book. Make that frictionless so that I can allow the flywheel ultimately to just keep iterating and keep changing. The marketer in me is hoping that the Carter's marketing team didn't pitch this this uh, new feature as tender for kids. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure they didn't. How do you manage the balance between customer satisfaction and business growth? That is a million dollar question there, Chuck. That is that is a huge one, right? So if I listen to just my UX team, it's all customer experience and everything is free, right? If I listen to the business folks is, hey, Craigslist works, right? That, that experience doesn't have a great UX. It works though, right? And they kind of have a point. So there's this idea of, um, you know, there, there's a, an interview with Warren Buffett back in the day where, he, you know, in 2008, 2009, when things weren't looking so great. And they said, where are we going to go from here? You know, everything's just going to change from here on out. And Warren Buffett said, hey, in 1962, do you know what the number one selling candy bar was? No, what is it? It's Snickers bar. It's 2009. Do you know what the number one selling candy bar is? No, you know, what is that? It's, it's Snickers. We tend to focus so much on what to change versus what to embolden. And I think as product folks, we got to make sure that once again, back to that core experience or that analogy of that, we got to make sure the meat, bread and cheese for that hamburger are absolutely stellar. So I think if you start there, all the other things will fall in line. One of the things that I, I tend to have a lot of conversations on when we're prioritizing, and there's so many different ways to prioritize, is to say, Ultimately, what is going to impact our revenue? What is going to impact our order conversion? What is going to impact our add to cart rate, et cetera? But also, what is this going to imp like? What are the, the risks of this? And I think risks tend to get lost in this. I, oh, we can grow $10 million if we launch this. Here's all the math that makes it make sense. What are you cannibalizing? What are ultimately you are risking from a performance perspective? What are you risking from a whole litany of risks that you need to look at? So, as I present an idea and I write my pitch deck out, that needs to be included. Uh, but to give you like maybe a more clear answer is I tend to say, if the customer was sitting next to me, would they enjoy this? And that's kind of just a, you know, an opinion based uh, exercise to go through. Uh, and that's why we like to do a lot of prototyping, etc. But also, I can't sit with my UX team and dream up incredible, beautiful ideas that are not functional, that really don't help out that's spending a lot of money that don't ultimately hurt or help the bottom line. And if I want to continue to get funding for our ideas, we got to make sure that the business is also top of mind. So it's a tough one, Chuck. It's a constant uh, balance that we need to find. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's really contextual to the problem that we are solving. But I think in that problem that you do solve, you got to have both top of mind as you go through it. Gotcha. And in the book, you, you contrast measurements versus metrics. How do you see the difference and why is it, why is it important to distinguish between them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think how you, so I've worked at companies where they have two different teams that help with this. How do we ultimately measure and tag the experiences on the mobile app or the website and add your Adobe tags or your Google analytics tags, et cetera. And then ultimately, as you measure those, how do those ladder up to a metric like uh, revenue, like uh, conversion, et cetera? And what's that math that makes sense? Uh, so to me, I'll make it very simple. It's ultimately transparency that the metric uh, has um, a high quality in how you are measuring and how you're bringing that to life. Uh, so yeah, I think you know, metric ultimately is the thing that we're looking for, the signal that knows whether or not that we are growing. But how do you feed that metric is through the measurement on the site and your tagging, et cetera. Gotcha. And 
One last question about the book. When you talk about the risks in product management, you break it down into cautious initiatives, strategic experiments, game changers. Give us an example beyond the Carter's example of a game changer that you built in your career, something that was at that highest point. Absolutely. So I worked some time at a company called owners.com and it was a startup in the real estate space. And their approach as a business was, hey, we'll handle both the buy and sell side and we'll offer you a smaller rate. So for those that aren't familiar with the real estate uh, space, typically you're spending um, as a seller, you'll pay 3% of the total price to uh, your buying agent as well as the selling agent. And we said, hey, we'll actually only charge you 3%. So that was their kind of change in the market. And they had a Zillow-like or Redfin-like experience. So as I was building the mobile apps, uh, what I recognize is that there is so much friction in how a seller and a real estate agent actually talk. So there is text messages, there's emails, there's um, you know different ways to communicate, there's phone calls, et cetera. And it was hard to keep up with all of the communication patterns where ultimately it's, hey, I like that one house we just saw. Wait, what house was it? As a real estate agent now, I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on. And quite frankly, because it takes seven months to buy a house, it was hard as a product person to say, what is the KPI that I should be looking for? I might look at a house and it's gone. And now my denominator of available homes, I don't control that. So I can't really say one of the metrics that's of interest to me is how many homes are looking at. I can't control that. So as we were looking at this problem, one of the game changers that we found was we started to look at the journey of that customer. And what we found is there's an inflection point. It's when a customer met with a real estate agent face-to-face. So instead of now trying to drive, and once, once they meet face-to-face, I believe it was like a 35% increased chance that they buy a house with us, irrespective of what the house was. So instead of trying to drive all of our initiatives and our strategy towards, hey, did you, someone use the app? Did they buy a house? No, no, no. Did they use the app and did they meet with that agent face-to-face at whatever home? And once we changed our mental model, that was a game changer for us. So now what we did is we launched something called co-shopping where on the app, remove text, remove email, those things will still happen. But now as a buyer, I can type on the on the app, hey, I really like this house. Agent gets a push notification. Hey, they're interested in this home. They can respond back. Hey, just heads up. That's in a floodplain area or whatnot. You know, here's the reason why it's been on the market for so long. And now we're having a conversation with the context being the place where I get all my info and I can schedule a tour, et cetera. So it added a stickiness factor and it drove face-to-face meetings with our agents because all of it's there right there for me. So that was a big game changer for us as we started to realize what we thought was our original metric or KPI we're going after. Once we changed that, it changed our whole strategy and our roadmap for what we should go after. And we really focused in on that relationship between the customer and buyer, knowing that, you know, almost stoic, we can't control how many houses are for sale or when they bought or whatnot. But what we can control is that relationship. So that was a game changer for us. That's interesting. And and to tie in another, uh, podcast episode that gets into the digital experience that we learned from Paul Stonic, where it's combining the physical and the digital together to create an elevated experience overall. So it's, it's a very interesting, very interesting wrap up there. So Jason, what do people get wrong about e-commerce product management? What's a widely held belief about delivering frictionless experience that you just fundamentally disagree with? I would say that I disagree that more is better. And you apply that to any lens. More design, more beauty is better. I disagree. I you know, I brought up Craigslist before, one of the ugliest sites, and it is un- incredibly effective. Um, 
more is better from a development perspective. More lines of code are never better. You know, actually the inverse is very difficult. Making a simple streamlined experience is actually really, really hard to do. And for every bet that I've got right, five or six were wrong. And I think you got to have the humility to be able to say that. So as you are testing, as you are trying to approach things, really come from a simplistic perspective. Say, what is the least amount of effort that we can do to drive the most value? And that probably is where it should stop once you find that answer. You could always create experiences around. But I think once you add a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more, you get in the way of the core experience. And that can really frustrate users. Um, I don't know about you all, but when I go on an app and it takes an extra two seconds to load, I'm done with it. This is a horrible company. You know, I feel bad. You know, I'm on the other side. I know what it takes. But they tried it to add too much that impacted performance. Or I go to a homepage. Sometimes I go to Amazon. It's like an endless scroll. I'm like, I just need some diapers for my child, right? Like, just let me let me get to that thing. And they're trying to hit me with watch Thursday night football, the Bears and the, you know, uh, the Panthers. I, I could care less. If we can't meet our intent with content and we try to get in the way with a bunch of other content and it, it disrupts why I came, I think you can really be in some trouble. And it's hard to read through that those data points. So as a discipline, if we start with less, I think you end up in a better place. Two really interesting things happen um, through this is the validation of products. When, when you're talking about driving the overall conversion rate by whatever or whatever metric you're going after, um, you end up creating product bloat, which is really what you're talking about. It's basically the, as, as, um, sites scale up, you start getting more and more finite across every single little aspect of the site. And now everybody wants their hands on the homepage and everybody wants their hands on the product page and everybody wants to add their little widget into every little bit. And the aggregate ends up creating a lesser experience, but each individual um, unit comes out to prove their hypothesis, not test it. And that creates product bloat that ultimately also wraps into another fun concept that I like to talk about, which is called performance creep which is basically the slow iterative degradation of the experience over time that creates a lesser and lesser experience. So when you get to the end of the year, all of a sudden you're like, what happened? We were, we were sitting here on these great KPIs and week over week or even day over day, everything looks stable and consistent. But when you zoom out, now all of a sudden you have gone way off the deep end. And that comes from not having the mentality of keeping it simple and not having this this mentality of doing more with less and less is more you know every every little idiom or whatever we could create out of this <laughs> throw in the others <laughs> <laughs> jason how do you keep up with the product manage, management industry what resources do you rely on besides the frictionless experience podcast well, I start with the Frictionless Experience podcast, but I, I often find now, as I started 15 plus years ago, is looking elsewhere for inspiration for where I'm at today. So the Tim Ferriss podcast, for example, he looks at all the different titans in their industry. And I promise you, every two hour podcast, they're long. I go one and a half X. You find these little nuggets of wisdom that you can try to bring into your own organization or your own team. Um, you know, I lead a great team right now at HC Supply, and I try to instill in them some of these concepts that came from different areas, but brought in. 
I also look at a lot of the competitors outside of my space. So once again, in mobile, uh, you know, it was forever thought that you can never have more than five icons along the bottom of your mobile app. And then Facebook comes out with six and it's all good. They kept it. Maybe I was part of a test, but now a couple of years later, they've had it for a while. Like, wow. I look at Facebook now to say, hey, my thumb can be pretty accurate for where I click. Um, so I look outside of our industry more than I do inside because I think in, especially, you know, currently at HC Supply, B2B tends to be five to seven years behind B2C. So it makes my job a little bit easier. I can look at the B2C world and see where the puck is heading and try to look around the corner for us to say what makes sense for us, what doesn't. And then lastly, you know, there's some great folks on LinkedIn that I follow. John Cutler is one of them. He's like a, a very theoretical, strategic thought leader in the product management space. So um, while some of it's a little bit out there for maybe a beginner, as you tend to sit there for multiple years and think about your product from different lenses, he's one that I would definitely recommend. Excellent. So what's one final thought you want to leave our listeners with? You know, I, I'm one to love the fact that I wake up every day excited to do my job. Why is that? Because I think in product, every day is different. You're always writing a new pitch deck for a new idea. You're talking to different parts of the business often. You are trying, you're solving problems from different angles pretty often. You're running A-B tests that depending on the business you're at, millions of people get to see every day. And I want to bring that career path, the fact that it even is a career path, uh, to as many people as possible. So if it's something that you're interested in, uh, I highly recommend looking at product management. It's an incredible career, especially as AI becomes a little bit more prevalent in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, now, as much as you are the why and the what, you can do some of the how yourself. And I think you're going to go from a lot of 10 to 12 people startups to one to three people startups. Um, and you're able to do a lot more with less. And so that's super exciting. But as you have ideas, how do you structure them? How do you format it in a way that makes sense, that is presentable? That's where I think Product Protege can help. Um, and I think take that time to really think about your idea through those lenses. And then you can present it in a much effective, more effective way, which increases the chance of you being successful and doing what maybe I hope you get excited and wake up with a smile every day like me. That's awesome. Thanks for a great conversation. Lots of great um, takeaways in this, this episode. Where can listeners find you and interact with you? What's the best way? Absolutely. On uh, LinkedIn, Jason Abdo, on Instagram and all the socials and uh, available at productprotege.com, which everything's kind of aggregated there and uh, excited to chat and talk product management. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jason. And thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Frictionless Experience. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player app so you can automatically receive notifications when we upload new episodes every other week. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Let us know what you think and what topics you want us to cover in future episodes. We'd be happy to cover anything that might be causing you friction. And of course, you can find and connect with me and Nick on LinkedIn. Thank you, guys. Today, we discussed product management with Jason, covering topics such as balancing customer satisfaction and business growth, the E3 product framework, and providing a 10-star customer experience. To recap, here are three frictionless ideas to take the smooth path to trust and loyalty. Number one, start with improving core customer experiences and not over-optimizing. Focus on your key metrics or king KPIs so you can have a clear way to measure your goals and success. Consider using the E3 product framework, which stands for Envision, Empower, and Elevate. 
so you can develop ideas before implementing them and really understand the friction point being solved. Number two, instead of shooting for a five-star customer experience, aim higher and think about how you can provide a customer with a 10-star experience. It should be your North Star to level up how you create and optimize your digital products to deliver a frictionless experience that goes above and beyond customer expectations. Number three, Jason emphasized the importance of not overanalyzing or dismissing new ideas without testing them first, as they may lead to valuable insights and opportunities. For example, to resolve friction around the challenges of mobile app navigation, especially for busy parents who use their phones with one hand, Jason and his team tested and implemented a one-thumb experience, which made shopping on their app easier for parents. All right. And on a final thought, Jason shared how he hopes none of the products he works on exist in their current form in the long term. Change is bound to happen. So make the process of adapting and innovating products as frictionless as the experience you want to provide your customers. Thanks for joining us on The Frictionless Experience. We hope you've gained valuable insights to fuel your digital success. Your frictionless journey is just beginning. For more episodes filled with expert strategies and a sprinkle of digital magic, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, keep optimizing, keep slaying friction, and keep embracing the frictionless revolution.